From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a formal welcome back to Beyond Right. This is our six-week series on Jewish values, Jewish ethics, and the laws that follow. All right, so I want to tell a story about Yankel. Yankel is our, is the, is our favorite name for a character that ends up usually with a punchline. All right, so Yankel, by the way, if you're, if you're Yankel... Nothing personal. It's just the name that we use. Nothing personal. So Yankel is backpacking through Israel. And he finds himself one evening, one night, he finds himself at a party in Tel Aviv. This party is hopping. Tel Aviv has hopping parties, just so you know. I'm not suggesting that you go to the hopping parties in Tel Aviv, but if, you know, okay. Anyway, he's at a hopping party in Tel Aviv. The place is on fire, as the kids like to say. I don't know if I'm saying that right. And at some point in the evening, he realizes, uh-oh, uh-oh, not good. His wallet is missing. Well, he's not a bashful guy, this Yankel. He's Yankel. He's been through so much. We've been, so, we've been through so much with Yankel over the years. Yankel gets up in a chair, and he says, shh, quiets the music, tells the DJ, stop. And he says, makes an announcement, he says, ladies and gentlemen, Fellow party goers of Tel Aviv, I lost a wallet with $500 in it in this very location. I will give $50 to the person who finds it and returns it. Upon which a very loud Israeli voice pipes up from the back of the room and says, and I'll give 75. My friends, what? That was a punchline. Hold on, Jerry, you got it? All right. All right, so my friends, this is lesson number five of Beyond Right. And I'll tell you, to me, personally, this course is like fine wine. It gets better by every class, with every class. Every class, this course gets better and better. So what is the topic for tonight? I'm glad you asked. Tonight's topic is ownership. I will venture to say that uh, most of us have not thought very deeply about the basic construct of ownership. In other words, it's something that, and I mean that in no way of disrespect, it's just, just saying that most of us take ownership for granted. It's just a thing, you know, we have stuff, we own stuff. My shirt, my car, my house, my computer, my phone, right? We have stuff. And we don't really think too much about what makes something mine, what, what constitutes the very boundaries of ownership itself. That's what I would imagine, and it could be wrong, but that's, uh, that, is, that is what I imagine. But what we're going to do, what we're going to do tonight is look at the very philosophy of ownership and try to understand what is it? What is it that makes my stuff mine? What is it that makes 
ownership something that exists. In other words, what is it that binds me to my stuff and my stuff to me? And what are the implications of that connection? What binds subject to object and what are the implications of those bounds? It's a very fascinating topic and as we'll see tonight, it's going to be a very important one because how we understand ownership directly impacts how we govern property rights. I'll say that one more time. How we understand the concept of ownership necessarily dictates how we govern property rights. In other words, the value of ownership necessarily shapes the legalities of ownership. Once again, that is what this course does. This course is looking at the values that shape the law. And once again, in this class, we're going to be looking at the distinction, the contrast between secular law and Jewish law, between the secular philosophical approach and the Jewish philosophical approach about ownership and about ownership law. The goal is to have a very solid understanding of the differing perspectives and to appreciate what Jewish tradition, what Jewish values, what Jewish law adds to the conversation. So today's class is divided into three acts. Today's class takes place in three acts. Act one, the philosophy of ownership. Act two, the Kabbalah of ownership. And act number three, finders keepers. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. We have some incredible ideas to explore tonight. Let's begin. So we're going to start our class and our deep dive by looking at three interesting case studies. This will get the conversation started. This will get us thinking along the lines of ownership rights and possession, etc. These cases will help us begin articulating for ourselves what we believe to be the nature and parameters of ownership, what makes something mine, what makes something yours, and what renders something not mine or not yours anymore. What binds people and objects together and what sunders them apart, as it were. As we read each of these three case studies, I want you to think about how you naturally, intuitively would judge each case and then we are going to discuss them. All right, so pull out your books. Case study A, the first case study can be found on page 136. I have tentatively titled this case, The Very Hungry Coworker. Who was it, Eric Carl? Was that Eric Carl who wrote The Very Hungry Caterpillar? Eric Carl, did I get that name right? Anyway, this is not The Very Hungry Caterpillar. No, although that's a fantastic read. This is The Very Hungry Coworker. I am going to share my screen with you, and we're going to do this together. All right, let's ask uh, Steve. If you don't mind, please, please unmute and read case study A in the nice shaded box. David and Mark are friendly work colleagues. One day, David is terribly hungry at work and in a terrible rush to boot. He, he notices that Mark had stored some food in the office refrigerator but Mark is out of the office and unreachable. David reasons that since Mark is absent, he does not need the food for that day and he could replace it for him tomorrow. Considering the circumstances and their general friendly relationship, 
David is certain Mark would allow him to eat his food. All right, thank you. I I think it's a pretty relevant, it's a pretty common, perhaps, scenario. You have work colleagues that are friendly. You know, one guy has lunch in the fridge, but he's out. The other guy's hungry. He could easily replace it for tomorrow. Can he have it? So here's the poll question right here. In your opinion, may David eat Mark's food? What do you think? All right. What do you think? If you think David should be like, again, how do you intuitively feel about this? Can David eat Mark's food? Yes. Raise your hand. Yes. No. No. All right. Hold on. Does anyone say yes? No one. You guys are onto Jewish. I feel like you guys are so sus. You guys are so suspicious of where we're going with all these. It's like if it sounds like it's good, probably not good. All right. You may be correct. All right, Jerry, you had a an adamant no. I mean, listen, if no hands went up for yes. Oh, Mike and or Rose said me, I think yes. All right, but the majority did not put your hands up for yes. I would assume that that means you're saying no. Jerry, if you don't mind, share with us your perspective why he should not be allowed to take his buddy's food. It's not his food. All right. I, clearly, it's not his food. I hear you. He doesn't get permission. He's stealing. Oh, okay, I hear All right, I hear you. I hear you. I, I, let me just give you... All right, I, I, I don't disagree, but let me just massage the scenario. A drop. Let's say... Let's say... The food that we're talking about is a red apple. Let's just say, it's just an apple. It's, um, it's Mark's apple. Hey, Mark. Not, I mean, that's not you, but Mark is here, but not, okay. So anyway, let's say it's Mark's apple. And like, oh, you need an apple, and you have a meeting in five minutes, and you need to grab something quick, or else your head is just not feeling, you're just not feeling great. You need, you need the apple. There's a, I'm, gonna, I'm upping the, I'm, I know I'm upping the stakes on this, no pun intended, but, but hear me out. There is, you're in a building, an office building, on the bottom floor is a convenience store that sells apples. After the meeting, you're going to buy another apple and replace the apple. It's not like there's no more apples, right? You are going to consume the apple, replace the apple. Cherry, what do you say? Did I convince you? It's not his apple. Ah, <laughs> ah, fooey! I thought I had you. I thought I had you. All right, you're, Jerry, you're a principal guy. What can I say? You're a principal guy. Now we will see. I've also worked in large offices. Oh, <laughs> you're saying you're a man of experience, not only principal but someone who has experience with this. Good. Um, nothing you're saying, and if I'm reading between the lines, there's nothing as infuriating as coming back to find your lunch gone and someone just, they, they meant to replace it, but they didn't get around to it, blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, you have no apple. Is that accurate? Perhaps? That's accurate. Okay. Well, what, what, if the, what if the food has a date on it and the expiration date is today and it's ah. food, they'll have to throw it out. That's a good question. But, but I feel like that's introducing an X factor that is going to be outside the parameters of the core conversation tonight. It's a great question. Let's leave that aside. It's a good question. All right, but let's stick with the apple example or another example. You want to eat it. You'll replace it. You didn't get permission. Mark's unavailable. I don't know. He's driving somewhere. I'm kidding. Hey, Mark. But, you know, like, what do you do? 
Mark, keep your eyes on the road. All right. But so what do you, what exactly do you do? Um, are you allowed to or not? Yes, Adina Malcolm. What about this scenario? You go down after the meeting, buy an apple, put it back in the refrigerator, but somebody else eats the apple that you've just replaced. All right. Also an X factor. Let's, we're keeping it. Good, good question. I'm not dismissing the question, but let's keep it, let's keep it tight. I don't want to lose focus. Let's keep it tight. Your friend, coworker has food. He's not here today, coming back tomorrow. Maybe you know his itinerary. You know he's in New York. You know he's out of town. Coming back tomorrow, you're going to replace it by tomorrow. You know him. He would be glad to share it. Can you take it? I'm feeling like the crowd is leaning toward a no. That's just what I'm picking up. Okay, but let's, let's keep an open mind. All right, let's move on to case study B. We, have, we still have a lot to get to. Case study B, I'm going to pull this up on the screen one more time. You have it in your books as well, 130, page 137. All right, here we go. Let's ask Adina Malka. You're ready to go, I think. Hold on. I, I hope you're ready to go. Please read case study B. Sarah goes along the street and discovers a bracelet lying on the sidewalk. She tries her hardest to track down its owner, but to no avail. So here we have Sarah or Sarah strolling down the street. She finds a bracelet. Nice bracelet. She's looking for the owner. She's announcing it. She's putting up signs. Have you lost the bracelet? Describe it. I'll get. She can't track that track down the owner. So here's the poll question. In your think of the drum roll in your head. We're not gonna actually do a drum roll, but think of it in your head. In your opinion, may Sarah keep the bracelet? Yes or no? All right, hold on. One second. Let me stop sharing so I can see you all. All right. If you think she tried, if you think she can keep the bracelet after trying, raise your hand, either real or virtual. Oh, okay. Okay, we got some we got some movement. Who thinks she should not be allowed to keep the bracelet? That's it. It's not her bracelet. She can't keep it. Anybody believe that? A few hands went up or maybe are still up. Okay, this case is interesting because in this case, the majority of you felt that the bracelet could be kept if the owner cannot be tracked down. So we believe that we can take something that's not originally ours in this scenario. Good. All right, hold the thought. Hold the thought. Now... Let's move on. Let's move on. Oh, right, you know what? Let me jump into this. Let me, let's do a deep dive. If you thought that she can keep the bracelet, yes, she could. Tell me why. Jump in, tell me why. Because she made every effort to find the person. It just isn't like she just slipped it in her pocket. Good. I mean, she made every effort. What else is she supposed to do? She made every effort. Excellent, excellent. What else? Any other reasons, rationales? No. Why might she? Why? Yeah. She can keep it un until she finds the owner. Okay. Fair. If she ever finds the owner, it has to go back to the owner. Okay. Is she allowed to wear it until then? Yeah. It it matches her outfit. It's like she has. I just recently discovered the name of a color. You're gonna laugh. Everyone's gonna laugh at me. It doesn't matter. I'm I'm like I'm 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 vulnerable. She has a chartreuse. Chart you know chartreuse? It's a color. Green. Yeah, so, so oh. no, it's a green. So listen, so my daughter shows up, I don't know, because I'm not like heavily involved. So she's, um, I'm saying with the outfits, I'm not like hands on with like the, the whole masterminding, the yumped, the holiday outfits situation. So she, Reva shows up to show, 
I don't know, uh, first day of Yom Tov, second day of, of Shavuos, whatever, one of the days of the holiday. I'm in Shul, I'm davening. She walks in and I compliment her on her yellow dress. She says, yellow? It's not yellow, it's green. Listen, here's the deal. Some yellows to me look green, some greens look yellow. I'm going to just approximate here. Turns out it wasn't yellow or green, it's chartreuse. Listen, what I, I don't know from chartreuse, chartreuse, I don't know. So like, uh, I, I'm assuming it's a color that was added after I grew up and stopped paying attention to colors. I don't remember. Oh, it wasn't. All right, my mom is saying no, which is fine. I'll respect that opinion. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. This bracelet perfectly matches your new chartreuse. I'm using the word, the, using the color. Your new chartreuse outfit. It's perfect. It's, it's perfection. Are you allowed to wear it? to the event that you were going to have that chartreuse until you found the owner you think you can wear it or, or not yes yes, yes. okay yes. perfect you try to find the owner you made every reasonable effort you can't track it down you're not selling it you're just going to wear it chartreuse it matches it's a it's a plan all right let's move on case maybe study the, maybe the owner will see it there you are oh. Even better. It's like a, it's a good announcement. It's like, look, I've got the chartreuse uh, situation. Um, oh, I'm sorry, David. All right. Um, okay. Let's go on to case study number three. All right. Check this one out. Case or case study C, as it were. Case study C. Here we go. It's a variation of the bracelet case. Listen to this. You guys are going to get so triggered. Oh, I know this. It's be such triggering happening here. That's what I love. Love to get us all worked up together. Okay, let's ask. I was going to ask Mark. Not a good idea. I'm kidding. Let's ask. <laughs> let's ask. Um, Mom, would you like to read case study C? Unmute. Please jump in. Leah strolls along the street and notices Naomi at a fair distance ahead of her. She watches in dismay as Naomi's bracelet falls into the gutter. Naomi tries unsuccessfully to extract the bracelet from the gutter. She throws her hands up in despair, gets into her car, and drives off. When Leah reaches that spot, she lifts the gutter cover and succeeds in extracting the bracelet. So before, thank you. Before we get to the, to the question, let's understand the case. Naomi loses her bracelet. It falls into the gutter. She tries and tries to get the bracelet out. She can't do it. She despair, visibly despairs, drives off. Leah shows up. She lifts the gutter cover. Who knows? Maybe she had, I don't know. Gutter lifter tools? Is that a thing? Gutter cover lifter tools? Wow, that's a mouthful. I have no idea if that's a thing. She lifts the gutter cover. She extracts the bracelet. And now the question is, in your opinion, may Leah A, keep the bracelet, or B, must she attempt to locate Naomi and return it? All right, what do you say, crew? What do you say? Can't she knows she knows who lost it? It's not, it's not a question. It's Naomi's bracelet. Does she, A, can she keep it? A, who says she can keep it? No. Must she return it to Naomi? Yes. yes. Okay, it seems pretty obvious. Good. All right, I don't think we have to elaborate on that one. That one seems pretty obvious. But I have a question. Sure. Naomi, 
obviously gave up all hope of it. Correct. So she made 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 it Hefker. Well, we'll get into the Jewish understanding. This was just a sense of how we feel. We're going to get into the Jewish parameters oh, okay. of ownership and the legalities as we develop the lesson. This, is, this was just a test of our personal um, intuitions about these cases. Do we feel like in this case, you see Ni- Leah sees Naomi drop it, it goes into the gutter. Do we think that she should keep it, be allowed to keep it, or have to return it? And most, most everyone is saying she should return it. She knows who dropped it there. She knows who the owner is. She should track her down, Naomi down, and give it back to her. Okay, fair. Very fair. So uh, here's what I want. Here's the big idea. Well, we have many, trust me, we have many big ideas. Today, here's one big idea. Big idea number one. And that is the answer to all these questions will really depend on how we view the concept of ownership. In other words, how we view ownership, our perspective on ownership itself, will dictate how we feel about Mark's food, Sarah's found bracelet, and Naomi's lost bracelet. How we view ownership will necessarily impact our answers to all of our case studies. And I'll demonstrate as we develop tonight's lesson what that means and how that works. But first, we need to explore what ownership really is. So please join me on a philosophical journey into the heart and soul of ownership. As I started today's lesson, I mentioned something that I want to revisit. I mentioned that I believe, without being inside your head and heart, I believe that most of us take the convention or the concept of ownership for granted. Ownership. Why do I own my house? I don't know. I paid for it. Um, Why do I own my phone? Again, I paid for it. Why do I own that piece of art? I painted it. Only why? It's mine. Most of us most of the time, I would venture, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I would, I would, as a betting man, I would probably say that most of us, most of the time, believe that ownership is just the way things are. But the philosophers, the great social, political, and economic philosophers, the great philosophers sought to understand what is it that really drives ownership. Overall, when sifting through theories on ownership, two major theories emerge. So just so everyone's on the same page here, I'm about to present two classic philosophical perspectives on ownership. These are not from Jewish sources. These are from secular philosophies. In other words, just worldly philosophies about the nature of ownership. And then we're going to contrast these two with the Jewish perspective on ownership. I'm just giving you a bigger picture of what we're doing. Back inside to our dual model of ownership in secular philosophy. The first position, the first perspective has it that ownership is a social convention. No, I'm not saying ownership is a party. That's not what I mean. Ownership as a social convention means that it's something that we as a society have decided would make a lot of sense. In other words, the thing that is in your possession, it's not really yours. I mean, an object is an object. It exists outside of you. There's nothing inherently that makes it yours. Correct? 
like your car. What makes it yours? Your car. It's my car. There's a lot of cars that look like that. What makes it yours? You're going to say, well, I paid for it. Okay. Does that make it yours? It doesn't make it essentially or inherently yours necessarily. What ownership is in this perspective, right? According to this perspective. Hey, Jules, welcome. According to this perspective, ownership is not an inherent reality. It's merely a social convention. By nature, we all should live the commune life. Everything is everyone's and the shared resources, etc. It's just that we feel that in order for a society to function at a certain scale with a lot of people and a lot of things, right, in order for things to run fairly smoothly, it makes sense so as to avoid anarchy and chaos, it, would, it makes sense to assign ownership of things to people. So if you buy something, we'll call it, if you pay money for something, we'll say that it's yours to the exclusion of everyone else. And again, that just staves off anarchy and confusion. Sure, we could all live a commune kibbutz life. Maybe at a certain number of people, we can all share resources. Like a good example, that is a family unit, Right. You invite the kids to dinner and you don't charge them for the meal. I would hope, right? They come to dinner. We have a pot of, uh, I don't know, pasta and cheese. Everyone can enjoy. Why? Because we're sharing resources. That's the way it works. Why doesn't the world operate like that? Shared resources. We have a lot of cars and everyone can use one. I don't know. It's not an efficient model at a certain scale. It's just, it's going to be too chaotic. So we say... If you want to have something, you have to buy it, and then it's yours. But we created the artifice, if that's the right term. We created something artificial known as ownership to superimpose order and to avoid chaos. These are not my ideas. I'm just reporting philosophical ideas that are brought in the good books. Let's Social convenience. Social convenience, social convention. Here we go. Let's take a look at this inside. I'm going to share my screen, and I'm going to read this. Ownership as a social convention, text number one. This is coming from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Very official. Hobbes and Hume. I hope I'm pronouncing Hume correctly. Hume, I don't know. Hume, I'm going to call him Hume. I'm assuming it's Hume. Hobbes and Hume, by the way, this is different than Calvin and Hobbes. They were a different pair. Just, just noting the obvious. Hobbes, okay, I know, I know. We're dealing with uh, two different individuals, Thomas Hobbes and David Hume. Hobbes and Hume argue that there is no natural mine or thine. Mine, mine or yours. And that property must be understood as the creation of the sovereign state, or at the very least, the artificial product of a convention entered into by all the members of the society to bestow stability on the possession of external goods and leave everyone in the peaceable enjoyment of what he may acquire by his fortune and industry. In other words, there's nothing that makes it yours, essentially, other than the fact that society said, let's create a system by which things can be yours and things can be mine so we don't kill each other. So we don't fight over the same things. Okay? That's one philosophy. The philosophy is stated, is found amongst other philosophers in the writings of the 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes and the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume. So yeah, that car in your driveway, 
the automobile that uh, that is near your house not really yours essentially it's not inherently yours it's just there's nothing that binds you and that's steel steel i don't know i'm assuming it's made of steel maybe it's nothing that binds you and that steel together essentially it's just that society has agreed for the sake of peace and order to create a system by which for the right price you have exclusive rights to that automobile to the exclusion of everyone else good fine that's one philosophy let's move on position number two Philosophical approach number two. That was one. Number two. Has ownership as natural reality. It's the opposite. In this understanding, ownership is so radically different than the first. This view has ownership not as an aftermarket social construct that we superimposed upon society so as to create some semblance of law and order. No. It is perfectly natural and essential. Just as we own our own selves, we likewise naturally own the things we create or the things transferred by the work or by the product of the work of our own hands. In other words, when you buy an automobile, you pay for it. How do you pay for it? With money. How do you get the money? Oh, you worked for it. Perfect. So, Are your hands yours? Yes. The work that you did is yours? Yes. The money that you earned from the work that you did with your hands is yours? Yes. The car that you bought with the money that you got from the work of your hands, which is yours, is it yours? Yes. That's the second position. This is the position of the 17th century English philosopher John Locke. Let's read this inside. Once again, I share my screen. Once again, I will read this text. This is text number two. Ownership as an ontological reality, which is a fancy way of saying that ownership in this conception is real and not superimposed. John Locke, on the other hand, was adamant that property could have been instituted in a state of nature without any special conventions or political decisions. Locke did not base his resolution of this difficulty on any theory of universal, even tacit consent, It's not like we all agree that ownership should be a thing. No. Instead, in the most famous passage of his chapter on property, he gave a moral defense of the legitimacy of unilateral appropriation. Listen to this. So philosophical. So beautiful. Sorry. Though the earth be common to all men, yet every man has a property in his own person. He starts with the body. This no body has has any right to but himself. Let me say that again. This, a person's own person, nobody has any right to but himself. Only you have a right to your own body. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we, must, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever then he removes out of the state that nature has provided and left it in, he has mixed his labor with and joined to it something that is his own and thereby makes it his property, which I feel like I should explain in English. I know it's English. Um, Your body is yours. Your hands are yours. What your hands do is yours. So if you take something of nature and you change it, you modify it, that is now yours. That's what he's saying. It being by him removed from the common state nature placed it in, it it hath by this labor something annexed to it that excludes the common right of other men. The fact that you 
created or modified something of nature means that now it's yours exclusively. And again, that would extend, just to clarify, that would extend not only to things that we... Okay, imagine you see a tree. The tree's not yours. You didn't make the tree, but the tree's there. Your body is yours. You take your hands, you pick up an axe, you chop down the tree, you take the wood, you make it into a chair and a table. Is that yours? The tree wasn't yours, but your body is yours, your hands are yours. The fact that you changed the tree into a table and a chair, that you did. According to John Locke, that means it's yours. And we can extend that not only to things that we create with our own hands, because otherwise we would have to get on the assembly line and start making some cars if we wanted a car. We could extend that to things that we purchase using the money that was produced through the labor of our own hands. Same, same idea. right? I work, let's just use the same example. I chop wood, but instead of using the wood to build furniture, I use the wood to sell. And I got money. And I chop more trees. I'm not advocating deforestation. Trust me. I'm just saying, I just went down this rabbit hole of an example. I'm just going with it. Right? So chopping wood, chopping trees down, you get the wood and you're using it. You sell it, you get money, and then you use it to buy an automobile. You buy a car. Mazel tov. Fabulous. Fabuloso. Whose car is that? Anyway, whose car is that? It's my car. According to Locke, it's my car. Why? Although I didn't with my own hands create the car. Nonetheless, the car was purchased using the money that was produced by the work, by the labor of my hands, and my hands are mine, my labor is mine, the money is mine, the car, therefore, is mine. That's what Locke's opinion would be. Thus, we have a machloket. <laughs> we have a disagreement amongst the great English-Scottish philosophers. And the machloket, the dispute, has to do with the nature of ownership itself. Is ownership superimposed? A mere convention, something that's not inherent, but an aftermarket feature? Or is ownership inherent and essential? Sounds interesting. But what does that have to do with us? So, keeping these two philosophies in mind, let's revisit our three case studies. Let's look back at our case studies and see if perhaps... Or as Locke might say, perchance, I don't know if you would say that. Let's see if perhaps the two perspectives on ownership might impact the way we view the three case studies we cited earlier. Once again, to the screen or to your books. Um, take Just to make sure the three doesn't belong to anybody. Correct. But when I introduce my reality or my, what's mine into nature that makes that thing of nature mine that's what he says that's his innovation okay that's so his condition does not belong to somebody else the tree doesn't belong to me but when i take that tree and modify it then it belongs to me exclusively so the tree did not belong to me but when i took it it was ownerless it belonged to everyone but when i took it and did something unique with it that made it mine so the same thing would apply to all things that we either make or purchase. He would say that that would be something that's inherently ours. Now, let's take a look at exercise 5.1. This is on page 140 in your books, okay? Now, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just a way of thinking about this or beginning to think of this in, uh, in, in, in some other terms. Okay, let's... One second. I can't see the entire picture here, so I'm going to... Make it a little bit minimized on my screen. Okay, I hope this works for you. Returning to our open, sorry, returning to the opening case studies. 
me read that in English. Return to the opening case studies and respond to the questions based on the perspectives of text one and text two. Basically, is ownership a convention or is it a reality? That's what text one, I wish they didn't do text one and text two. I wish they actually wrote what text one and text two are. Again, text one is ownership is just a convention. It's not real. Text two is ownership is real. So in case study A, David wants to eat food from the fridge. It's Mark's food. Mark is out of town, but David and David will replace it. Is he allowed to eat David's food? So if ownership is not real, if ownership is merely a social convention, do you think David should should be able to eat Mark's food? Maybe? Well, it, it's a social convention that all members of society have entered into. Ah. So it still counts. It still would be binding. Good, good. So you might be tempted to say, well, it's not his, it's not Mark's anyway. It's not Mark's food. What makes it his? Oh, he bought it? Eh, it's like fake news. Eh, we just decided that. So, but you're right. Uh, once we once we decided, we decided. Good. So we could you could go both ways, and you're likely right that once it's his, it's his. Um, according to text two, i.e., that ownership is real. It's really Mark's food. If he bought it, it's his. It's like the work of his hands, which is his. So then, can David eat Mark's food? What would you say? No, probably not. Our right, case study B: May Sarah keep the bracelet again? So she, so someone had the bracelet. They lost it. Sarah finds it. She can't track down the owner. So can she? keep it if you say ownership is just a convention can sarah keep it does that even affect this case i don't know what do you think yes no maybe if it's a convention she can't keep the bracelet <laughs> she can't keep the bracelet okay no. all right um but she can't find the owner either all right i don't know what she's supposed to do all right if it's if ownership is real if it's an ontological reality for her to get uh very specific in the language of this class. If it's an ontological reality, can she keep the bracelet? It really belongs to whoever the owner is. Probably not. All right, case study C. May Leah A keep the bracelet or must she attempt to locate Naomi and return it in the case where she sees Naomi drop into the gutter, but she can't retrieve it herself. And then Leah retrieves it. Can she keep it or must she return it if ownership is just a convention? If it's a reality? I don't know. Who knows? All bets are off. I will tell you who knows. We're going we're gonna to have greater clarity on this. I, listen, there's no right or wrong answer. As I said, this is just a way of thinking about the implications of the philosophy and the law. But really, as you know, you're not, I, 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 know, I know you guys, you're not here for like English philosophy. You're not here for, you know, um, 17th century philosophy. What does a rabbi know about 17th century philosophy, right? John Locke, Stock, and Barrel. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. Here's why I get paid the big bucks. I get paid the big, as if, I get paid the big bucks to share with you a Jewish perspective. And that's what we're about to do. We're about to go take a walk on the Jewish side of all this. Because heretofore, ooh, try that on luck. Heretofore, we've been discussing, we've been exploring the secular philosophical approach to ownership. Judaism, however, has a very different take. And as we'll see, Judaism's perspective on ownership actually more closely aligns with one of the two models we cited above, but for a very different reason. And that's because Judaism's model of ownership is driven by spiritual considerations, spiritual, mystical considerations. 
Which means, my friends, double buckle, whatever that means, because we're about to get Kabbalistic. Funny story. There's a class that I taught. No, I, not a class. I did a session for AIB, Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasters, on the essentials of Kabbalah. For some reason, of all the videos that I've ever done, this one went viral. There's between half a million and one million people that have watched. I don't, I don't know why. It's a very popular video. It's called something like, What is Kabbalah? Or Kabbalah Explained. I don't know. It's a video on Kabbalah. And I talk about the first Kabbalists. I will, the comments are hilarious. Some are a little mean, but whatever. It's just like kind of random when you have a lot of people watching. You get random comments and the comments are open. What's funny is, for some reason, people are like, did he say capitalists? Let me just be very clear here for anybody listening. This is not about capitalists. This is about Kabbalists. Kabbalah. K-A-B-B-A-L-I-S-T. Kabbalists. Kabbalists. Something like that, along those lines. All right. Let's talk about Kabbalah, not Kapitala. We're talking about not capitalism, but Kabbalism. Spirituality, my friends. Let's talk about the Kabbalah of ownership. To do that, let's go back in time in our time machine. Let's go back, I don't know, 3,500 years or so. Let's go back 3,600 years ago. Let's go back to the times of our patriarch, Jacob. And let me set the scene. Jacob had run away from home. He, ran, he wasn't young, by the way, when he left home, but he ran away from home nonetheless because his twin brother, Esau, wanted to kill him. Why did he want to kill his own brother? Well, Jacob may or may not have taken the blessings that were earmarked for his dear beloved brother. So, with that being said, having found out that his brother took his blessings, Esau was not quite pleased, and he wanted to kill him. So Jacob bounces out of Dodge, as it were, or Canaan, and he finds his way to a place called Haran. In Haran, that is where his uncle Laban lives. His uncle, who as the plot twists or as the world turns with the young and restless, um, Laban would become his father-in-law. Yes, you heard that correctly. His uncle was ultimately his father-in-law. It's a thing. Is it the South South Haran? I don't know. Just this is the way it was. We're in Atlanta. It's, we're all friends. Here's the point. Here's the point. Jacob is by Laban, his uncle slash father-in-law, for 20 years. He gets married multiple times. He has multiple children. And upon the birth of his 11th son, it's a lot of boys, upon the birth of his 11th, 11th son, Joseph, he decides after 20 years by Laban, he decides it's time to go home. And so he packs up his stuff, his family, he's got a lot of family, he's got a lot of stuff, he packs it all up, and he begins the trek back home to the land of Canaan, later would become known as the land of Israel. Along the journey, he finds out that his brother, oh, remember that guy, Esau? His brother still harbors resentment and is, is, is approaching him with 400 men armed to the teeth. 
Now Jacob is panicked. He's afraid, he's unsure, he prepares for the worst, and he is a bit, uh, he's a bit fearful of this fateful encounter with his twin brother. Well, the night before this encounter, the Torah tells us that Jacob takes all his stuff and his family and crosses them over the river. And let's take a look at what happens next. Text number three, page 141. Let's jump right in. Ray, are you up to reading? I will put this on the screen. If you are, please unmute and jump right in. Text number three, a mysterious wrestling bout. Hold on. Don't forget to unmute. I just uh, requested the unmute. Just hit that button. Should be a... Yeah, you got it. Okay. Jacob took his family and transported them across the stream. And then he brought his possessions across. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. Thank you, my friends. This is the grand, mysterious wrestling bout that happened with Jacob many, many years ago. Yes, before WWE, even before WWF, before they had to change the name. Back in the 80s, that's what we used to know it as. Before wrestling, that may or may not be real, there was a real wrestling match between Jacob and this mysterious man, whom you may know was actually an angel in disguise. But we're not going to focus on that part of the story, no. I have another question, which is, I think, even a little bit more basic than who was the combatant of Jacob. My question is simply this. Why was Jacob alone? As we saw in the verses, Jacob crossed, helped his family cross over the river. Then he went and crossed his possessions over. He should be then together with his family. How is he alone? How is he finding himself alone and vulnerable. The Talmud comes to the rescue and addresses this great mystery text number four. I will read this text. Follow along, please, with me. Text number four, page 142. The Talmud says, Rabbi Elazar explains that the reason Jacob found himself alone and exposed to danger was because he had returned to get some small jars that had remained behind. I'm going to pause here for a moment and just explain what we just read. Jacob crossed his family across, helped his family across the river and then moved his stuff. And then he went back. He went back to retrieve some small jars. That's when he found himself alone. The Talmud continues and doubles down on this interpretation and says this episode informs us that righteous individuals cherish their possessions more than their own bodies. Wow. He risked his life to get some small jars. Why do they care so much? For they never touch stolen property. Okay. I hope that makes sense to you because to me that makes zero sense. The Hebrew word that the Talmud uses for righteous individuals is the word tzaddikim. Tzaddikim, you may be familiar with the Hebrew. Tzaddikim are not only righteous people, but like, I don't know, tzaddikim. Tzaddikim are like really righteous people. The Talmud is telling us that what happened with Jacob? Jacob 
helped his family, moved his stuff, and then went back a third time. Not for the people, not for the big things, but for a few small jars he left behind. The obvious question is, why? Just leave the small stuff behind. Who cares? And the Talmud says, no, because tzaddikim, righteous people, find their, even their very small possessions, very important. Even they find it more important than their own bodies. Okay, great. That answers the question. My original question was, why was Jacob alone? That answers that question. He went to get the small jars. But in the process of answering that question, we now have, in my opinion, a few more, even more troubling questions. Some more serious questions. Number one, if we're talking about tzaddikim, righteous people, why do they care about the small stuff? They care about... The more of a tzaddik someone is, the less they should care about material possessions, one would think. Right? If someone's hedonistic, sure, they care about all their stuff. But a tzaddik, a spiritually enlightened and righteous individual, right, attuned with God and purpose and spirituality, what do they care about the small stuff? What do they care about the small jars? To the point that they care about it even more than their own bodies? How does that make sense? What are we talking about? And second of all, I'm going to put this back up on the screen. Look, look what the Talmud says. Talmud says, and you know what the big conclusion is? Right? Um, oh, sorry. And, and why do the Talmud asks, and why do they care so much about their stuff? Because they never touch stolen property. Because they never touched. If it's like a word salad, we're just throwing out words. What is, who was talking about theft? Who stole what? Jacob goes back to get the small jugs because he wouldn't steal? What does that have to, huh? He went back for the small jugs because he would never touch stolen property? Who's talking about stolen, I hope you're with me on these questions. Stolen, no one's been talking about stolen property. The question is, why is Jacob alone? The Talmud says, because he went back to get some small stuff. Why did he get the small stuff? Because it's really important. Why is it really important? Because he wouldn't steal. Okay, zero sense is that's making. To, under, to make sense of this, and you know, if the questions don't bother you, it's okay, just know that they bother me, and my questions should bother you. I'm kidding. If, I hope the questions bother you, but even if they don't, I think you'll find the resolution imminently satisfying and enlightening. Because what we're about to do is study a piece of Talmud according to Kabbalah. Not capitalism, Kabbalah, Jewish mystical wisdom. And to do this, we're going to look at a teaching of none other than the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. Text number five. I'm going to read this. I, you know, I'm hesitating now. Should I explain the concept first and then read the text, or read the text first and explain the concept? I don't know. I'm going to roll the dice. Let's read the text first. Text number five. The soul of ownership. This is about to get real. By the way, if you take away one thing from tonight's class, let it be this text. So please buckle up and join with me on this ride into the soul of stuff. The Torah, says the Baal Shem Tov, is highly protective of people's personal assets. Why? This is a result of the major spiritual principle that whichever material items we use, the garments we wear, the food we eat, or the utensils we utilize, we derive benefit from the spiritual force present within each item, for the existence of that item is sustained by virtue of the spiritual presence within it. 
I will explain all of this. Specific sparks of spirituality are embedded within each item. And through divine providence, items that are used by particular individuals harbor the specific sparks that are related to their soul. As a result, when we use a utensil, eat food, or wear a garment to satisfy our corporeal needs, bodily needs, we thereby repair the spiritual sparks embedded within them because we subsequently serve God with the energy that our body required through that item. Wow, a lot of ideas here. We must therefore be highly protective of our possessions of whatever we own out of concern for the individualized spiritual forces they possess. Let me break this down. I hope that's somewhat settled. Let me break everything down. I'm going to break it down point by point, one by one. Idea number one in my own conception. Idea number one. Every physical item has a spiritual soul. This is a truth in Kabbalah. Every physical entity has a soul. Science will tell you everything in existence has molecules and atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons and quarks. Quarks, apparently. That's what science will tell you. Kabbalah will tell you everything has soul sparks i'm going to use that word tonight soul sparks sparks of divine energy sparks of spirituality of godliness that power and drive every item on the face of the earth that's point number one point number two typically the soul sparks of a thing are trapped within the exterior physical husk of that thing. So for example, you look at a piece of food or a beverage. Whoa, surprise, surprise. LaCroix, if you're listening, feel free to sponsor this. We, I have with me a can of LaCroix. Pamplemousse, which is fancy, fancy, for grapefruit. Okay, so Pamplemousse, you look at this, do you see soul sparks? I don't know, I see a can. Very interestingly uh, designed can with a beverage that I happen to enjoy on occasion. Wonderful. Seltzer. Seltzer. You got to love it. The ancient Jewish beverage. Remember when Moses hit the rock? They were traveling in the desert. He hit the rock. He had to hit it twice. You know why? Because the first time it was still. The second time it was carbonated. That's a joke. The point is that we've enjoyed seltzer for a long time. And so we have here some kosher LaCroix, which means something else, lacrosse, whatever. Anyway, some kosher seltzer in my hand. Do you see the soul spark? I don't see the soul spark. Because although everything has a soul spark, the soul spark is typically hidden inside the exterior husk of that thing, i.e. it's materialism. You see seltzer, you don't see divine energy. You see chala, chala? You see sourdough, it's all the rage. You don't necessarily see the soul spark, but it's there. Our job, listen up, our job, if we so choose it, not if we choose it, our job either way, is to go in, engage, encounter, extract, sublimate, and reconnect the spark back to its source. That's our job. We go in, we grab the spark, we get out. It's basically 
you and I are basically secret agents. You ever wanna be James Bond? Welcome to your life. That's exactly what you are. You go in, you drink the seltzer, you pretend like, oh yeah, I'm so thirsty, whatever, I want seltzer. Boom, there's a divine spark in there. You utilize the beverage, you get like a, a clear throat to be able to teach a class. I don't know who I'm talking about. Chaim. We've just, we've, I've just utilized the beverage for a higher purpose to teach Torah. I've just released the sparks for a higher purpose. This is true of everything that we come in contact with, everything we own. The food we own, we eat, the clothes that we wear, the house we live in, the automobile we drive, all of the things that we own, all the things that we possess are intended for us to utilize for a higher purpose, i.e. to extract the sparks and utilize them for a divine purpose. That's the second point, maybe, or the first point. I've lost track. Next point. Every single one of us has a predestined list of objects and soul sparks that we are meant to elevate. The Talmud says before a person is born, it's already decided which house they'll be in, which possessions they'll own. The things that we encounter, the things that we own are predestined. Because only our soul can unlock those soul sparks. I'll give you an example. I have in my hand the key to understanding this idea. Oh, look, it's an actual key. And what I have in my hand is a key fob. I'll use this one. A key fob to an automobile. It's a Honda. All right, it's foreign, whatever. It's, a, it's an automobile. This is the lock, unlock auto start or something, trunk open, and some loud alarm situation. Okay? That's the key fob. If I go to a parking lot with a few different Hondas, same make and model, and I start clicking the unlock button, how many cars is it going to open? One. My fob opens one automobile. Your fob opens one automobile. Mine opens mine, yours opens yours. This is the next big idea. The next big idea is that we all have very specific items that we are meant to interface with, that we are meant to elevate, sublimate, and reconnect back to the source. That is our task in life, to encounter some very specific items, some very specific objects, to own them, so to speak, and to elevate them to, for a higher purpose. That's our job in life. You can't elevate the soul sparks that are destined for me, and I can't elevate the soul sparks that are destined for you. I can't unlock your car, you, you can't unlock, unlock my car. The stuff that you're meant to have and elevate is stuff that's not meant for me. Does that make sense? Ownership according to Judaism, Jewish spiritual thought and philosophical thought, ownership is not a convention nor is it the product of our hands as Locke would have it, but rather it is an essential spiritual reality that is intertwined with the very DNA of my individual soul. The stuff that I own, that I own, is part of my spiritual destiny. The stuff that you own is part of your 
spiritual destiny. This is such a deeper, this is a vastly deeper perspective on ownership. It's a spiritual predestiny wherein my fate and the fate of this item are inherently and essentially spiritually intertwined. It cannot fulfill its destiny without me utilizing it for a higher purpose, nor can I fulfill my destiny without it. My destiny is to elevate this thing. This means that ownership, from a Jewish perspective, is real, really real, on the deepest of levels. This explains why theft is so anathematic, if I pronounce that correct, in Judaism. I cannot take your stuff. Why? Because it's not mine. It's not in my destiny. It's sparks. It's interaction is meant for you. If it's yours, it's destined for you. It's not destined for me. If I take your stuff, it's like trying to take your car with the wrong key fob. It's just not going to work. It's a waste of a resource. I can't unlock it. I can't elevate it. Certainly not through something like theft. But even if it's another way of, of, of attaining your thing that's, uh, that's less egregious, if it's not mine, it's not mine. It's yours. I, work with, I need to work with my stuff. You need to work with your stuff. I cannot take your stuff. That's not part of the program. It's not part of, it's not part of the, uh, the plan. This also explains good old commandment number 10. Remember top 10? Letterman's top, sorry, God's top 10 commandments. Right, number 10 was thou shalt, I don't know why we're saying thou shalt, who does speaks like that, don't covet, not to covet someone else's stuff. Why is coveting so wrong? One might ask, what's wrong? I'm not taking your stuff, I'm just coveting. I'm just a little jelly, as the kids like to say, jealous, right? I'm just being a little jealous. I'm not acting on it, what's so bad, what's so wrong? But now we know why. Coveting is a very serious problem. Because coveting means I'm missing the whole point. I'm missing the whole idea of stuff having a spark, of possessions having a destiny, of God having a plan, of my stuff being connected with me, of your stuff being connected with you. Coveting means that I believe that I live in a disconnected world, a world in which there is no purpose, there is no plan, where this guy's stuff might as well be my stuff because nothing matters and nothing actually makes a difference. That's the problem with coveting. Coveting is the result or the symptom of an underlying worldview that nothing matters and nothing is predestined, nothing is purposeful, nothing means anything. The Jewish view is radically different. God has a plan. There's a purpose in everything. Everything has a soul spark. And every person has certain soul sparks that they are uniquely suited to elevate. And if it's not mine, it's not mine to elevate. If it's yours, it's yours to elevate. If it's mine, it's mine to elevate. I should not touch your stuff nor should I covet your stuff. I have my own stuff to deal with. I don't need to be all coveting. Coveting is so un-Jewish, it's so unkosher, it's so wrong. And finally, this explains what Jacob was doing on that fateful night, the night of the great no-holds-barred cage match, the rumble across the river. It didn't rhyme. I tried. Um, yeah, what was he doing that night? What was Jacob doing that fateful night in his wrestling with that angel man? What was he doing? He went back across the river. Why? The Talmud says to retrieve small jars. Who cares? Loves him gain, as they say. Let it go. 
Not for spiritually aligned folks, the Talmud says. Not for tzaddikim. What's a tzaddik? Tzaddik is someone who has that vision. Tzaddik is someone who sees the plan, who sees the destiny. If you see the plan, you know, whoa, those are not just small jars. Those are items that were divinely orchestrated to be in my orbit for me to elevate. I need to go back and get them. If they're in my orbit, if they're in my possession, if I own them, then I need to do something magical with them. I can't leave them behind. Jacob goes back. Because those items are worth more, are more important than his own body. What does that mean? The physicality of his body. What's the body anyway? It's a tool. But these objects represent the purpose of his mission. The purpose of his life is to elevate the items around him, using, certainly using his body. But what's a body worth if we're not employing it in the fulfillment of mission? He's putting mission before safety because without mission, what do you need safety for? And this explains why the Talmud connects it with the prohibition against stolen property. Because the righteous don't take other things. We say, what's, what's the, who's talking about stolen property? We are. We are. <laughs> At Sadiq, someone spiritually aligned knows not to touch someone else's stuff. Why? Because it's not mine. It's not meant to be mine. Those are not my sparks. I'm not going to misappropriate someone else's sparks, rip it away from them, and mess up the whole master plan. If that's yours, it's yours. Enjoy. Bete avon. It's yours. Knock yourself out in a good way, not in a, in a, in a, in a uh, sarcastic way. It's yours. Run with it. That's what Judaism says. Stolen property? Why would I take something from someone else? It's not mine. It's not my mission. It's not my purpose. Not my destiny. Those are not my sparks. I'm going to take your sparks? What can I? It's like taking your, it's like trying to take your car with my key fob. It's not going to work anyway. What's the point? I'm going to show you the Talmud. Let's reread the Talmud from the perspective of Kabbalah. This is powerful. And I hope you guys are with me on this. Talmud Chula 91a. The reason Jacob found himself alone and exposed to danger was because he had returned to get some small jars that remained behind. Small jars? Why small jars? This episode informs us that righteous individuals cherish their possessions more than their own bodies. Why? Because they see that their possessions, their possessions, contain the purpose of their being, for they never touch stolen property. Only what's theirs is theirs, but what's theirs needs to be utilized for something important. It needs to be expressed for a higher purpose. And thus, you cannot leave even small jars behind. If it's mine, I must utilize it. If it's yours, I'm not going to touch it. The same reason why they would never touch stolen property, because that's your sparks, is why he went back to get the small jars, because that was his property and his destiny. So your destiny is your destiny. I'm not going to touch that, but my destiny cannot remain behind. That's what the Talmud is saying, as explained in Kabbalah. Sometimes you need a little Kabbalah to explain the Talmud, because there's a crossover in Torah. Torah is one unit. You need the spirituality to explain the mechanics you need the metaphysical to explain the physical. Understanding this Jewish approach to possessions and ownership is so important. What it means is simply this. The stuff that we own is not random. It's not happenstance. It means that we own it for a purpose, that there's a reason why we own it, 
And the reason is because we're meant to do something magical with it. It doesn't belong to someone else, which means that that is not their mission. This is my mission. My stuff is mine, aligned with my mission. Your stuff is yours, aligned with your mission. I don't touch your stuff. You don't touch my stuff. I don't steal from you. You don't steal from me. I don't covet your stuff. You don't covet my stuff. Everyone, the lines are clearly demarcated. The lines are clearly drawn. Mine, yours, my possession, your possession. Ownership is real because it reflects spiritual purpose, and spiritual destiny. All of this radically affects Jewish law, not just vis-a-vis the prohibition against theft and the prohibition against coveting, but it it explains Jewish law in very magical ways. Let's first deal with the laws of theft. You know, when it comes to stealing, I think we'd all say stealing is wrong, but there are gray areas one of which we described before in our case study. The gray area would be, yes, okay, well, let me describe not a gray area. Armed robbery, not kosher. But, you know, it's an apple. It's, it belongs to the, my friend. It belongs to Mark. My name is, what was my name, David or John? What was my name in the, in the first case study? I'm just putting my, interjecting myself in the case study. David and Mark. It's Mark's apple. I'm David. I'm hungry. I'll give it back. I'll buy another one. There are a lot, a lot of justifications that we can make to convince ourselves that it's not really stealing. It's not really theft. It's not like armed robbery. I'm not intending on, you know, not replacing it. I'm just eating the apple and I'm going to replace it. What's the big deal? Right? That's our first case study. What's the big deal? You know, this is the, uh, the ethical murkiness that sometimes exists, where we justify actions because it's not so bad. Rabbi, Hold on one second. Let me just finish because I'm like, right in the middle of something. One second. Okay. But, but, based on everything we've explained thus far, from the Jewish perspective, of ownership being not just reality, but the deepest spiritual reality, based on all of this, we have a very, very different perspective on Mark's apple. And that is that Jewish law is unequivocal because it follows the Jewish spiritual perspective. If it's Mark's apple, you know what that means? That Mark's soul is uniquely suited and uniquely trained to elevate, sublimate, and reconnect those soul sparks in that apple toward its original source. That is Mark's job and that's Mark's key fob, so to speak. His soul and that soul, they are intertwined. Me, I have nothing to do with it. Now, one second, time out. If Mark gifts it to me, that's something else. If Mark says, here, here's an apple, that means that Mark's soul is gifting it to me. But if Mark doesn't know about it, I can't unilaterally on my own just rip it away, rip it asunder from Mark and say, oh, that's mine. It's not. That's theft. Jerry's intuition from earlier tonight. I mentioned Jerry because Jerry spoke uh, vocally about this, but I imagine that many of you felt the same way. Jerry and many of you, many of your intuitions on this topic are exactly correct from the perspective of Jewish theology, philosophy, mysticism, spirituality, and Jewish law. Jewish law unequivocally states that you are not permitted to take something that belongs to someone else, 
Even if you're sure they won't mind, even if you're sure you'll replace it, it doesn't matter. That item is theirs. It has a spiritual connection with their soul. You cannot rip it asunder. Take a look at how this is phrased in Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. Take a look at text number six. If you enter a private orchard or garden, you may not pick its fruit without express permission from its owner. Listen to the continuation. This applies even if the owner of the orchard is your dear friend and will certainly be extremely pleased to hear that you enjoy their fruits. Nevertheless, since the owner is unaware of your actions in real time, it is forbidden to benefit from the fruit. Let's continue. This principle applies in all similar cases, not just fruit in a field. The public must be cautioned regarding this law because it is commonly transgressed due to lack of awareness. The Code of Jewish Law, this is actually the Alter Rebbe, and this Code of Jewish Law says that many people make this mistake. They think, well, it's fine because I'm sure my friend will be fine with it once they find out about it. And the Alter Rebbe says in, in Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, that that doesn't make a difference in the present moment. What will happen later doesn't impact the reality right now. Right now, the reality is that this belongs to them This spark belongs to their soul. I don't have the right, spiritually, philosophically, or legally, to unilaterally decide that that status will change. That is mine now. I don't have that right. I don't have that right. And if I do that, that is called theft. That is called misappropriation. And those sparks will never be elevated in that process because they don't belong to me. Now, if the orchard owner says, take some apples or gives me apples, that's different. That's them who is connected with those sparks, literally handing the sparks to me to deal with. That's consent. That's consensual. That's kosher. If I rip it away, there's no consent. Oh, but I know for sure they would have said yes. That's not consent. That's assumed consent. That's not the same as consent. And that doesn't move the spark association to me. It's still by them, and therefore it's theft on my end. Getting back to case study A. I hope it's clear. Case study A. There's food in the fridge. I'm starving. Sorry. There's food in the fridge. David's starving. It belongs to Mark. Can David eat it and replace it according to Jewish law? No. No. But he's I, uh, 10 minutes from now, sorry, an hour from now, I'll replace it. Sorry. You can't. Why? Because it's not yours. The soul sparks don't belong to you. You can't elevate it. It's theirs. It's misappropriation. If they gave it to you, sure. But you can't take it. That's case study A. I hope that's clear. Mark, you want to jump in quickly? Yeah. Um, I've long heard that to save a life, we can break almost every mitzvah Yeah. to save a life. So if someone is literally starving to death, aren't they, in fact, required to steal? Yes. Yes. If someone's starving and they come across a cabin, and in the cabin there's canned food, 100% they're allowed to and obligated to open up those cans of food and eat them. Or if someone finds someone starving and then finds a cabin, you have an obligation to break and enter, steal, and feed that person who's dying and save their life. Why? 
because life itself supersedes the mission of life. I hope that's, that makes sense. The life, why? As the Talmud says, break one Shabbos so that you can keep many more. Violate one moment of applying purpose and sparks so that the person can live to do many more instances of that. So that would be the rationale. Great question, and that would be the perspective. Now, but, but that's the exception. The rule is, if it's not yours, you can't take it. But let's get back to So now, with that in mind, let's take a look at the next level of conversation, which is vis-a-vis lost property. Here's where things get very interesting. Okay? When it comes to lost property, the question is like this. When I lose something, when I lose something, does that automatically become the property of the person who finds it? Or perhaps we would say that somehow that thing is still mine, even though it's no longer my possession and I don't know where it is. In other words, to reframe it in more simplistic terms, is finders, keepers, losers, weepers a real thing? Or is that just fake news? I mean, is that just a, uh, you know, like a thing that kids say on the playground, finders, keepers, losers, whatever it is, whatever the, the tune is to that phrase? Or does it have some measure of legal validity? So let's first look at how secular law deals with lost and found objects. Okay, let me share my screen. We're going to move a little bit quickly now over the last few cases. Text number seven, this is secular law. At common law, a person who found lost personal property could keep it until and unless the original owner comes forward. This rule applied to people who discovered lost property in public areas as well as to people who discovered lost property on their property. That's common law. However, many jurisdictions have statutes that modify the common law's treatment of lost property. Typically, these statutes require lost, proper, lost personal property to be turned over to a government official and that if the property is not claimed within a set period of time, it goes to the finder and the original owner's rights to the property are terminated. So initially, initially, common law would have it that if you find something, essentially, yeah, you can keep it until someone claims it. Jurisdictions say, no, don't keep it. Turn it over to a government official until a certain amount of time has elapsed and after that point in time, they'll give it back to you, then you get to keep it. But either way, at some point in time, you get to keep it. What does Jewish law say about this? Take a look at the Jewish legal ruling on this from the Torah itself. This is straight up Deuteronomy. This is old school, five books. Let's go. If you see your fellow's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it. Be sure to return it to its owner. If the owner is not near you or if you do not know the owner's identity, take it home with you and keep it until they come for it, whereupon you shall return it. Do the same if you find their donkey, garment, or anything else they have lost. You may not ignore it. And here we find Jewish approaches to lost and found items. In Judaism, there are three distinctions, three major ideas. Number one, number one, you must get involved. Do not ignore it. If you see something that's lost, you have to get involved. You have to interject yourself in the situation. That's how important it is to get this thing back to its owner. Remember, ownership means that this item and that person's soul are intertwined. They're soulmates. That person needs to be reunited with this item. If you see someone's stuff lost, you got to take it upon yourself to get it back to them. They have a spiritual obligation to that thing and vice versa. That's number one. Number two, 
you must actively work to return it. It says, be sure to return it to its owner. That means do whatever you can to find the owner and get it back to them. Don't hand it over to the court. It's your responsibility, personal responsibility. The final point here is, there's no expiration date on this obligation. Secular law says if, you know, after some sort of statute of limitations, you get to keep it. In Judaism, you take it home with you and keep it until they come for it. But after how many years? Indefinitely. It's not yours. You're holding it in trust for them. It's not yours. So they lost something that they're spiritually connected with. You found it. You have an obligation to get it back to them. Get involved. Be active. And if you can't find out who, whose it is, okay, it's still theirs. That bracelet that works with the chartreuse outfit, it's theirs. It's not yours. There's no permission to wear it. It's not yours to wear. It's theirs. They need to wear it. Yeah, but you can't find out. You can't find them. Okay, so keep it for them. Keep it for them until, until it gets reunited. It doesn't make it yours. It doesn't magically transfer over to you after a year, two years, five years, ten years. That's not how it works. Take a look at, I believe, Maimonides. Yeah, perpetual limbo. Perpetual limbo. I hope that makes sense to you. If an announcement, that's the limbo song, I believe. If an announcement or notification regarding the discovered item was made and the owner did not come to claim it, the item should remain, as you tried and you didn't succeed, the item should remain in the possession of the finder until the arrival of Elijah the prophet. You know what that means? Until Mashiach comes. You got to hold on to that thing until the Messiah comes and then we'll sort things out. It's not yours. You're holding it for that person indefinitely until such time as their identity becomes clarified. Why? Because their soul is connected with that item, essentially, inherently. Ownership is real. It's not a convention. Ownership is real. It's not even the product of my hands. Ownership is real because our destinies are intertwined. That person and that bracelet are intertwined. So now you found it. Okay, it's not yours. You can hold it for them, but it's not yours. You got to get it back to them. If you can't find them, okay, so hold on to it. Keep it safe. But you're keeping it safe for them, not for you. There's a difference. There's no expiration date on that. Adina Malka. But, you know, what if it's a hardship on you to feed their dog? You can sell it and keep the cash. You can sell it and keep the cash. It's a great, that's a great question. The Talmud deals with it. If it's too difficult, you can sell it and keep the cash in a safe place. That's it. But it's not yours. This is a unique Jewish perspective. Now, there is an exception to the rule, as we'll see now. The exception has to do with a very unique case. Because as we've seen thus far, um, the Jewish spiritual philosophical perspective on ownership shapes Jewish law in a very important way. It keeps person and object in a tight relationship that cannot be broken willy-nilly by a third party. So again, just to recap, the two case studies so far that we've explored, Mark, sorry, no, sorry, David, apologies to you, David, not, not the David here, but David, right, no lunch for you. And Sarah, sorry, no bracelet for you. You got to head over to Tiffany's and get your own bracelet that's going to match the chartreuse 
outfit that's not uh, that's not yours to 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 utilize. But this tight and essential relationship and bond between subject and object can work the other way too. And that is in a case, one second, hold on. That is in a case where the property owner consciously severs the relationship with the object so that it objectively is no longer theirs. And that will be true that if the individual severs their relationship with that item, if they've consciously written it off, then it is now no longer theirs. They have spiritually cut the cord on that item to the point that even if someone finds it and they know who it belongs to initially, they are not required to give it back. This is something that is otherwise inexplicable. And yet, when you understand the, dyna- the foundational dynamics of Jewish law, it makes Perfect sense. If, you, if you're trying to figure out what in the world I'm talking about, let's go into some texts and let's look at some real cases. We begin with Maimonides. Maimonides shares with us something very important. Text 10a. Maimonides explains why the Torah, in the obligation to return lost objects, the Torah mentions the example of a garment. Maimonides. By mentioning the example of a garment... The Torah teaches us a law. Every garment is unique, and cont- at least back in the day, and contains features by which it can be identified. We therefore presume that its owner will seek its recovery and we are obligated to return it. This establishes a principle. Listen to this. Any article that has identifiable features is assumed to have an owner who seeks its recovery and must therefore be returned. And that's all we need to know right now. When the Torah mandates returning a lost item. When, when Judaism tells us that that thing still belongs to that person because their souls are intertwined, that is specifically and exclusively referring to a situation where the owner has not given up hope prior to its being found. It's where the person lost it and upon losing it would have said, I can find it and has not given up hope and thus has not cut the cord of the bond between them and the object. However, and that's because there is something identifiable about that object that they feel like they can identify. Like in our case of uh, Yankel and his wallet in Tel Aviv. I lost a wallet, $50. And he can I probably identify what's in the wallet by giving simanim, by giving certain signs and indicators as to what was in the wallet. However, something that's lost with no and, and something an object that's lost that has no identifiable features, no clearly identifying um, signs, the person has likely given up hope, and thus, when they've given up hope, they've consciously, they, the owner, has, they have consciously severed the connection, which means two things happen. Number one, the object, let's just talk about the seltzer can. So number one, if I lose this, theoretically, right, if I lose this, so number one, it's not in my physical possession, but spiritually you're connected. Yeah, not if I decided that I'm never going to see it again. If I've given up hope on ever retrieving it, if I have consciously decided that, yeah, I'm never going never gonna to get that back, then not only is it physically not in my possession, but consciously and spiritually it's no longer in my possession, which means the finder could keep it. Listen to this one more step. I'm taking you on a journey. I know we're late. I know we're at the time. I'm taking you on one more step of the journey. Even in a case where there are clear identifying markers, 
there is a scenario where the person will still despair of ever seeing it again and thus consciously disconnect from that item. And that is a case of extenuating circumstances where the person will have said, that's a goner, I will never see that again. Look back at Maimonides. Second paragraph. By contrast, a lost article that no longer has owners who seek it because they have despaired of its recovery belongs to its finder even if it bears identifying features. Even if there are identifying features. If the owner has despaired of recovery, then it is no longer theirs. They have lost the physical component and disconnected psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually from that thing. What is an example of that? <coughs> Acts of God. Natural disasters. If you discover an, a lost item on the seashore within reach of the tide or in an area inundated by a flooding river, you may keep it. This applies even if the item has an identifying feature. That's all we need. If you're downriver from a tsunami or downstream from a tsunami <coughs> and you find something that has a person's name on it, it's a ring with a person's name on it. You know who it, who it belongs to. But it was lost in a tsunami. And it would, assuming it would be reasonable to assume that the person who lost the ring has despaired of ever finding... Because who finds stuff lost in a tsunami? It's obviously going to be who knows where. If it's reasonable... I'm not saying it is. If it's reasonable to assume that the average person would have despaired of ever finding it, even though their name is on it, because tsunamis are tsunamis, then you are allowed to keep it, even if that person's name is on it, because ownership is real, and because it's real, it can also be disconnected in a real way when the person consciously turns off. If the, if the item is no longer in their possession, and psychologically, they turned off, they turned... They hit the end button on that item in their life. Spiritually, there's no connection anymore. Getting back to case study C. Naomi loses a bracelet in the gutter. She searches. She tries to extract it. <coughs> she throws her hands up in the air. This was case study C. And she gets into her car and pulls off. I want to stop for a moment. We don't know, I don't know, if when she pulled off, she was giving up hope, or maybe she was going to get someone who knows how to open up a gutter. I don't know. Which is why it's not a great case study between you and me. But it doesn't matter. This is about the concept, not about the actual case study. Not about poking holes in a case study that somebody came up with. That's not, that's not the intention of this class. If there's a scenario where it's clear, it's got to be crystal clear, 100% crystal clear, that Naomi has absolutely despaired of ever finding it again. Let's say you hear her say, Oh no, I will never find that bracelet again. Woe is to me. I'm not even going to bother trying to find someone who can open up the gutter because I don't believe it can ever be found. I will have to go now to the store and buy a new bracelet. If you hear that, doesn't matter if it's ever going to happen. If you hear that, here's what that means. Number one, she is no longer in physical possession of the bracelet. Number two, she is no longer in psychological possession of the bracelet either. She has given up hope. She has turned off her mind, her heart, 
her soul from ever engaging with that bracelet again, which means that spiritually, it's available. When you find it, it is technically, legally yours. Even though you know whose it is, it's no longer theirs. This is the double-edged sword, as it were, of Jewish law and Jewish spirituality. (coughs) What it means is that Jewish law and Jewish spirituality, the Jewish philosophy on ownership, in most cases, cements the relationship between owner and object to the point that even if they lose it, it still remains theirs. But what this also means is that in the case where the person, number one, lost it, and number two, did despair, did despair of ever seeing it again, at that point, that same objective, cemented connection has now been severed, and now it's available to the point that the one who finds it, even if it has the name on it, even if they saw the episode unfold, legally, it is theirs. Legally, it is theirs. This is the great... I don't know, paradox, duality of Jewish law. It is theirs, it is the finders, because because the other party has disconnected. Let's take a look at how the Maharala Prague explains it, and then we're going to close out today's class. Maharala Prague, the famed mystic and legal genius, (coughs) the creator of the golem. Your property is not a part of your body from which you cannot be separated Rather, it is your possession, something external that belongs to you. In other words, it's something of the world that is connected with your soul, as we said before. Therefore, if you lose an item and it is no longer in your possession, and, step two, you have also removed it from your consciousness through abandoning the hope of its recovery, strict principles of ownership dictate that it is no longer yours, it is ownerless, and thus, the one who finds it can keep it. Again, Judaism believes that ownership is a reality. It's not an, un, it's un, it's not an unbreakable reality. I mean, you can sell something, and that means that the sparks have transferred. You can gift something, the sparks have transferred. You can disconnect from something, which means that the spark is available to the next person who picks it up. And that's what happens in this case. In a case where you've never given up hope, Before someone else encountered it, it is yours and nothing can change it. When they find it, they have to hold it for you indefinitely. But if they have severed their connection, if they have despaired of finding it, if they have given up all hope of recovery, and then you find the item, they've made it available. The sparks are claimable. That thing is now yours from the strict perspective of the law and from the strict perspective of spirituality. And thus, that thing is yours. Case study A, can David eat Mark's food? Of course not. But he knows he'll give it to him. It doesn't matter, not without permission. Case study B, can Sarah keep the bracelet that she found? No, she holds it in trust of the owner. Case study C, can Leah keep the bracelet? that Naomi allegedly, well, at least the way it's phrased, that Naomi certainly despaired of? The answer is technically, legally, mystically, yes. Why? Because the same one, the same individual who had a very tight spiritual relationship with that item, 
has chosen to cut the cord. And thus, it is now free and available. Let's do one. How does the finder know? You're right. The finder might not know, but if if the you can't assume despair. If you happen to know, that's the only time this would work. You're 100% correct. You have to, you, in most cases, you would have to assume, well, you would look at signs. If there's, in typical cases, if, um, if there's no identifiable marks on it, then you can assume that the owner will have said, I'm never, how, how am I, even if someone finds it, how can I prove it's mine? You're with me on that? If it's something so anonymous that could never be proven that it belongs to someone, so then that person will have, probably given up hope and despaired, so therefore you can keep it. Something that has an identifiable, that's the first case in Maimonides, something that has an identifiable mark. So typically a person will not despair, but in, in certain extenuating circumstances where it can't be retrieved, they will have despaired, then again that, that case comes in. In the case of the gutter, at least the way it's framed in the, in the textbook, it wants us to believe that that's a case of pure despair, which then would render it ownerless, which then Leah could receive it. But again, it goes back to the same core value. Ownership is real, provided the owner hasn't chosen to sever it. If they've severed it, then it's no longer theirs. Then it's available. Leah can use it. She can have it. That's from the strict perspective of the law. One more, one more text. Take a look at this last text. Text number 12. All of that was the law, but there's lefnim mishuras adin beyond the letter of the law. All of the above accords with the letter of the law. Nevertheless, the good and proper course of action is to extend yourself beyond the letter of the law and return a lost item even if its owner has already despaired of its recovery. So if anyone got nervous about what Jewish law says, don't worry, there's an app for that. There's an extra legal consideration. And from an extra legal consideration, we say, you know what? It doesn't belong to them anymore. The sparks are disconnected. But you know whose it is. It says the name on the ring. You saw Naomi drop it in the gutter. You Come on, you know whose it is. Give it back to them. Not because they own it, but as a gift. Because their soul had a connection. So you know what? It's nice to give it back to them. Do you have to? No. Is it the right thing to do? Yes. Hold the questions. Let me finish. Let me wrap the class because we're late. And then, we'll, and then we'll get to discussions. So in the final analysis, do a quick summary. In the final analysis, today we learned a lot. We explored secular philosophies on ownership. We saw how some see ownership as a convenient societal convention, while others see it as a bit more inherent and essential. Judaism, of course, takes a much, a much deeper view, as we saw tonight. Judaism considers the spiritual purpose of the object and sees the owner as the one who is designated and destined to interact with and elevate its soul sparks, the soul sparks of that item. The underlying, this underlying perspective of ownership in Judaism shapes Jewish law in unique ways. Number one, ownership is real and can't be broken unilaterally by someone else. No one can break your hold, your ownership over something. That's not their power. They can't do that. Even if they have a good rationale, even if they have a good excuse, that's theft. Someone says, oh, I, I'm sure I can eat that apple belonging to Mark. No, you can't. You don't have the power to sever those soul sparks. That's not your job. It's their sparks. Number two, the second point that we learned tonight is that ownership extends to lost objects as well which must always be held in trust of the owner 
and there must be an attempt, an active attempt to locate the owner. And if you can't find the owner, okay, but hold it for them. Again, you can't sever the sparks. It's theirs. You might say, yeah, but after a few years, they probably despaired. You don't know that. And if they didn't despair before you found it, it remains forever theirs. And until Elijah comes with the coming of Mashiach. And the third point, which was the counterpoint almost, is when a person loses an object and then despairs of ever finding it, then they are the one that has sundered, that has severed their relationship, their own relationship with that object, and that makes it available to the one who subsequently finds it, even if to the finder it's clear as to who initially owned it. And yet, after all of that, we still saw that to go beyond the letter of the law means that even though it's yours and it now it belongs to you, still what's right is to reunite that person with their initial object as it was back in the day. What emerges from all of this is Judaism's fierce belief in the critical role that stuff plays in our lives. We are not simple consumers of stuff. We are rather spiritual warriors who are tasked with elevating all of the things that come into our possession. And as we saw tonight, only I can elevate my stuff. Only you can elevate your stuff. So no need to be jealous. No need to covet. No need to take something that belongs to someone else. Let's appreciate what we have, recognizing that this is my mission. What I have is mine. Let's apply ourselves to our mission. Nothing should be wasted, like the small jugs. Don't waste anything. Everything has a purpose. Let's release those divine sparks and make this world shine. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for lesson number five of Beyond Right. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope this was meaningful for you. Announcement before we close out, and uh, I'll take questions, certainly, but one announcement about next week's class. Next week is our sixth and final lesson. It is called Beyond Presumption of Innocence. And the questions we'll explore next week are very important. Are there any human biases that we should, or biases, that we should actively cultivate? Is human nature essentially good or evil? These questions have been debated and discussed by philosophers and psychologists for centuries. Freud would certainly love to weigh in on this conversation. But join me next week for a sixth and final lesson as we explore the unique Jewish perspective on these questions and more. And I look forward to seeing you then. All right, thank you again for joining me tonight for lesson number five of Beyond Right. And now, on to the questions. Mom, jump in. Um, okay, now I have two questions. One is the original one, what if that, that food in the refrigerator is going to go bad if somebody doesn't eat it that day? And it's known that it's... So you have I don't to know. Again, I, no, you said that before. That's the X factor. I don't, I don't know. I, I would have to look that up in halacha. I don't know if halacha deals with the case of where it would be a loss. Even if it is a loss, I don't know that's, that's your cash. I don't know that's your calculation to make. Can you say that if somebody's not elevating their sparks, therefore I can steal it? If somebody has money 
and they're not using it for what you deem to be a higher purpose. Can you then take their money and then give it to Sadaka? It would be essentially the same thing. They have an apple, and their role in the apple is to elevate the sparks, but if they're not eating it, it's going to go to waste. So might as well, I should take it and do it. If it's theft, it's theft. I don't think, I don't think that changes it. Again, I'm tentative, I'm hesitant to answer without definitively looking that specific case in Jewish law, but to me it's the same as saying, well, I don't think someone is using their money wisely, I'm going to play Robin Hood and, uh, and give it uh, to, to, to a good cause. Yeah, well, that's, but there's one factor that's, that's, that you're not taking into consideration, and that is that the person would not, the, the person who owns the money would not say, go ahead, take my money. Whereas the person who's not using right. the food... Right, no, that's a very good point. But still in halacha, there's a yeah. difference between a person that would have said it versus a person saying it. As long as the person hasn't said it, they have right. not severed that bond. So therefore, you can't say they would have said it and therefore unilaterally sever their bond. That's their bond to sever. That's not your bond to sever on their behalf. Unless they, yeah. yeah. My second question is, how can a person, what gives the original owner the permission to sever a bond that was set? Oh, great question. Good question. So the Torah permits. That goes goes to, correct. you could say, there it is. Yeah. Assisted suicide, not assisted suicide, but... Let me deal with the question. So the question, yeah. the core question is, so what gives us the right to sell or to, to gift? The answer is... The answer which is... Sever. Which is severing. The answer is the Torah. The Torah talks about cases of buying and selling. So clearly the Torah is on board with a scenario in which we can imagine that two people had to tag team on the elevation of a certain item. So first it it had to belong to me, and then by divine providence, you have to touch it as well. So therefore Torah allows for me to sell to you. The Torah would say, Kabbalah would say that even even though we're not aware of how this unfolds, even though we don't see when we sell something, then in retrospect, by divine providence, it had to touch both me and you. Two people had to be involved with this. By the way, this is not my speculation. In Kabbalah, this is what it says absolutely clearly with regards to buying and selling and gifting and receiving gifts. In a case where something tra- legally transfers ownership in legally provided means, uh, was legally kosher means, that means spiritually that this item's sparks had two people or more that needed to be involved in its elevation. So the reason why it's okay is number one, the Torah tells us and Kabbalah explains why, because it needs to be done. But that's only where, again, that's only where it's consensual. If the original party who had possession of that that item has agreed to sell it, to gift it, or has turned, or has despaired of ever finding it, which means they're basically saying, it's not mine anymore. In those three scenarios, it's no longer theirs, and whoever finds it can keep it. The real twist is the is the last piece about beyond the letter of the law, where we say even though it's not theirs anymore, right. give it back to them. Let them let them have another shot at it. Okay, so what about per, a person who gives up on his own life? I don't want to. I don't want to mix in assisted suicide. It's too. It's too I'm many factors. Assisted, life. And, no, no, life assisted. and yeah, no, life and death. We're gonna leave. That's let's leave that aside. Okay. All right, more que- questions and questions. Ray, jump in. Hold on, don't forget to unmute. Okay, so it's interesting that this came up tonight because it happened to me yesterday. Yesterday it was pouring rain, 
it was terrible, terrible. And the two guys that were walking me home said, let's stop in the shul because it was just terrible. The lightning went out. Okay, we go in there. And after a while, I said, well, let's see if there's not a raincoat hanging in the cabinet. Mm. I'll, I'll borrow it and return it first thing in the morning. Excellent. And the guys who were former yeshiva students, they talked it over and said, no, that would be Seth. And so we ended up asking the maintenance guy to give me a garbage bag, and I became a bag lady. Right. It's a very interesting case, and I wonder if that is actually the halacha, because the difference between your case and the case of the food and some of the cases discussed in halacha is that in your case, you would use it but not consume it, in the cases of halacha, primarily we're talking about cases of consumption where when it's used, it no longer exists. Oh. There may be a distinction. I'm not going to rule, I'm not, uh, not going to pass it, I'm not going to rule right now on it. But like we saw with the chauffeur, that you're allowed to borrow someone's chauffeur without their permission because you're not, cons- you're not ruining the chauffeur, you're not using it up, and it's, it still exists, etc. In the case of the raincoat, no harm, no foul, it's for a good cause. There might be, remember, the case that we studied tonight was an apple orchard eating the fruit when you know the guy would consent. The author ever said that's theft and people need to know about that. You didn't, you weren't going, I'm assuming, you weren't going to eat the raincoat. You were going to wear it and put it right back to be worn again by the owner. The question is, is that ripping away the sparks from the owner or not? They can still use it. So, I'm going to reserve judgment on that case. It's a great question. Come back some other time as we discuss it. It's a good question, but it's not as simple as tonight's class. Um, yes, Adina Malka. How did they know where to find you who are holding it for them? It's like a needle in the haystack. Say it again. What's the question? How do they... If you find something in your home and the owner comes yeah. to retrieve it, how do they know where you are? Where good, good. So you're giving me a good opportunity to share the protocol in Jewish law, which we didn't really get into tonight, about how to return lost items, how to find the owner. Um, according to Jewish law, you have to go to the synagogue. You have to go to the marketplace. You have to announce it. You have to publicize it. Now, you don't give all the details because otherwise you're opening it up to, you know, people lying about it. But you say, I found something. Either you say, I found a bracelet. You tell me where you lost it. Or I found something in such and such location. What? Tell me what you lost. But you basically publicize. I mean, put it in the penny saver. Is that a thing? That was a thing in Pittsburgh. Anyway, you, just, you basically make, uh, you go public on it for a certain amount of time. After that, you no longer have, I mean, you don't have to like announce it and publicize it for the rest of your life. But it still doesn't belong to you. It still belongs to that person. You know, what would be interesting is what I, you know, what I said about the raincoat. Could you wear the bracelet then? Because you're not consuming the bracelet. You're wearing the bracelet. You're not ruining the bracelet necessarily. But you might be putting wear and tear on the bracelet. You know, again, that's a little bit of a gray area. If I wear it once because it matches my chartreuse outfit, I know what you guys are wanting. Next week, I come in in a chartreuse jacket. That would be epic. Not the green master's jacket. I mean, I don't 
I'm not that good at golf, but like the chartreuse, I don't know who wears chartreuse, but like chartreuse jacket, that would be epic. Maybe we'll consider that. I don't think so. But maybe we'll put a filter. Maybe there's a way to like Photoshop this. Anyway, good question. And the answer is essentially that you don't just sit and hold it. You actually actively announce it and seek to reunite it. All right, questions, comments. Oh, you know, I saw a comment here in the chat. Um, ah, that's a great question. Oof, Jules is asking a good question. How do we define things that are predestined? Can we say that anything is predestined? What about uh, the commission of sin? What about evil? Is that, oh, it's predestined that it happens? It's a great question. That's a question really beyond tonight's class. That's like one of these really good spiritual, philosophical, theological questions. You know what the crazy answer is? And maybe we'll get into this a little bit next week because we'll talk about good and evil. The crazy answer is kind of or less tentatively, yes. You know know what Kabbalah says about Adam and Eve? Their big sin? It was predestined. Now, you can't, when I say you, we can't go into a decision saying, well, whatever I do is going to be predestined, so might as well just live today and we'll fix it. Can't do that because we can't play that game. But once something has been done, the perspective is that that is the course of action that was predestined or that was what was destined. And now the question is, what am I going to do about it? So in my in, in one's personal life, here's how that here's how that kind of thought process would be. Okay, I made that mistake. Go, I, I didn't think that it was predestined when I did it. That was my choice. But now I recognize at this point where I am right now, I recognize that if it happened, it must be part of a script. The question that I need to ask myself is: so what was its purpose? That I should make a mistake and just be in a negative place? No that I should somehow use that episode as a catalyst for greater growth. So for example, if let's say in a relationship, if I said something or did something that compromised on some level the relationship, okay, so it wasn't good. I didn't go into it thinking that this is some sort of master plan. But now that it happened, I can meditate on the fact that if it happened, it must be part of some sort of higher purpose. And therefore, my question is, how do I use this negative episode for a higher purpose, for a greater purpose, for the purpose of connection. So if I feel motivated by my mistake to become closer to a loved one, well, then I've redefined, I've flipped the script on on, on what that meant. Before that meant separation, now it meant connection. So for example, an example that I've used before is, you know, if I read my kid a bedtime story every night, and then one night I'm out with the guys and, you know, I don't read. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I don't read. And, and, and I come back the next, and, and the next morning my kid sees me and says, in tears, you know, I, I missed the, the bedtime story and, you know, uh, it, really, it really hurt. Or whatever, like the kid's really broken up by it. And then I'm like, wow, I didn't realize how much that meant to the, to the child. And then so from now on I commit. That's it. I'm never missing that again. I've redefined the mistake. It's, not, it's now that action of missing that night of the bedtime story is actually, if I utilize it correctly, can actually be the greatest force of, of, of bonding between me and my child. It can be the greatest 
asset. It can be the greatest positive experience ever. I would have never known how, mu- how, how important this was to my child. I would have never been as committed as I am now to my child had I not messed up that time. Again, we can't go into it thinking that I'm going to mess up and then rebound. That's a dangerous game to play. No one would ever advocate. I mean, I'm not even going to get into like other scenarios. Like, you know, um, uh, disrespect the loved one so that you can then recover from You don't go into it like that. But if it happened, understanding that everything that happens is part of a purpose, then now I need to ask myself, what is the positive that I can take from this? And most of the time, it's, it's, it's driven by the fact that I realize how negative it was. That itself is the catalyst for positive. It's a great question. Um, next, Mark asks, what about a ship that sinks in five miles of water? Doesn't the salvage company get to keep it? I would, so I don't know what U.S. law is. That's, that's outside right now of my, uh, my expertise. So I don't know what maritime, look at that, maritime law would say. But here's what I would say, Jewish law, yeah, if something sinks and it's, it's unsalvageable, theoretically. I, I'm not saying what case is what. I'm, I'm giving you a scenario. If something sinks and it is reasonably unsalvageable, even if it says stamped on it, soulish bars of gold on it, and it's re- but it's reasonable that I gave up hope on it, you find it, you get to keep it. But by the way, don't forget the last piece of it. Give it back to the soulishes. All right, next. Um, Unless unless the, the, the ship company hires a salvage company. Oh, then, again, if we know yeah. that they didn't despair, exactly. If, if it's clear that there was no despair because they were literally seeking it, yeah, 100%. So sometimes you'll know it because you assume it. Sometimes you'll know it because you see facts on the ground. All right, my friends, I'm going to let you all go. It's already 10 o'clock. Have a wonderful evening. I hope that you enjoyed today's class. I hope that you enjoyed the the discussion and the three perspectives on ownership, two philosophical, one mystical, one Jewish. And um, I hope that the the applications resonated. And uh, may you utilize all your stuff for the good. And may we unleash those sparks and fulfill the purpose for why we are here. Laila Tov, good night. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Yes, exactly. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at Intown Jewish Academy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful day.